Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. The greatest illusionist ever, probably. David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear, his audience disappear, the space shuttle disappear, and himself disappear. But as we all know, unless he's a practitioner of the darkest of dark arts, nothing is as it seems. The reality behind the sensationalism is generally more mundane. This is why a magician is to never reveal his secrets, lest the people say, Hey, wait a minute. Well, I don't know what Mr. Copperfield is doing these days, but it appears he has many, many challengers, and every one of them appear to be reporting the news. Read the headline, only the headline. Don't look behind the curtain. Ta-da! On today's episode, first we'll witness a little sleight of hand, then we'll saw a marriage in half, and finally we'll be hypnotized into thinking that the Founding Fathers said what they meant to say. So, does anyone in the audience have a $100 bill I can use? Make sure to grab yourself a big glass of water, and keep your eyes on the Constitution. You're getting very sleepy. Abracadabra, here we go! So close, and yet so far. Have you ever been so close to something you could feel it, taste it, and then, then, nothing? The excitement, the anticipation, the daydreaming, and then the crushing disappointment. This is unwrapping the big box by the Christmas tree, only to reveal smaller and smaller boxes. And then, socks. Although I'll admit, new socks feel great. It's the marriage proposal denied. It's the raise at work that didn't come. A saying I try to use as much as possible is hope for the best, expect the worst, that way you'll never be disappointed. I mean, it sounds like a really gloomy type of saying, but it's not, I promise, it's really not. I generally consider myself to be an optimist, but a realist. I generally do try to look at the good and assume the best, but I'm also realistic about it. And that's what that little saying really represents. Of course, this doesn't always happen. I, like many others, get caught up in the emotion of anticipation, and then, uh, zip, it's pulled right out from under me. Well, on November 10th, a Texas-based federal judge dashed the hopes and dreams of probably billions of college students and parents of college students when he blocked President Mumbly Joe's unconstitutional and illegal misuse of taxpayer dollars to forgive ten to $20,000 of federal student loan debt per borrower. Now, who appears to be shaping up as a perennial disappointment, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett has twice denied emergency petitions to the Supreme Court to put a stay on this forgiveness program. Both times she did it on her own, both times she did it without explanation. Now, I understand that she can do this. I understand that she can do it without explanation. That's her right. That said, it seems, uh lazy or shady, especially since there is absolutely a question as to can Biden actually do this. So I have no idea what her deal is. But on Thursday the 10th, District Court Judge Mark Pittman, appointed by President Trump, ruled that this program usurped the powers of Congress. He wrote, quote, In this country, we are not ruled by an all-powerful executive with a pen and a phone. Instead, we are ruled by a constitution that provides for three distinct and independent branches of government. 
The court is not blind to the current political division in our country, but it is fundamental to the survival of our republic. Oh, can we just take a moment and bask in the republic? It is fundamental to the survival of our republic that the separation of powers, as outlined in our Constitution, be preserved. Now, he's not actually saying that this program can't happen. He's saying that the Congress holds the purse strings, so they need to be the body that actually approves this. Huh. Almost seems like a Supreme Court justice would have similar thoughts regarding the Constitution. Uh, Who am I to say? Well, on the same day that this judge, let's call him the constitutionally correct judge, decided that the Constitution was, you know, slightly more important than Biden's pet projects to try to raise his dismal approval numbers, found on CNBC via MSN.com headline, After student loan forgiveness, 73% of borrowers plan to spend more on travel and dining out. Yeah. Okay, hold up a minute here. Weren't we told that these loan payments were holding young people back from getting married, starting a family, buying a house, buying food? Weren't we led to believe that all of these poor, misled children, these little angelic urchins, just they were taken advantage of by those fly-by-night federal crook loan sharks. They just want a shot at starting their adult life without being unfairly burdened by the loans that they knowingly signed up for. Yeah, we were, and uh, yeah, we know that was in large part lies. So these students won't get a check, but apparently their loans will have their balances reduced and then have them re-amortized, so now they owe less per month. What we're being told is that this means the borrowers, who borrowed all of the money with clearly stated terms, will now have extra expendable cash. We were told that these poor kids were either coming up short every month, and this program would fix that, or that this lack of extra cash was stopping them from all of the things I previously mentioned. Well, according to the article in question, it appears that the vast majority of these borrowers are looking forward to wasting the windfall. Our tax dollars are just chomping at the bit to provide. This is like the kid that's given $10 to pay for his school lunches. And on the way to school, he stops at the gas station and buys candy instead. Uh, Sure, if we provide extra expendable cash per month, we unfortunately don't have the ability to tell them what they can and can't do with that money. Well, we have the ability, we have the right, but it's unenforceable. So that's where we get the 73% saying that they expect to spend this extra money on non-essentials, travel, dining out, new tech. This was per a survey taken in October by Intelligent.com. A few other key findings from their survey, 84% of men were likely to spend money on non-essentials, 65% of women. Looking at the political parties of these borrowers, twice as many Democrats say that it's fine to spend the money on non-essentials as compared to Republicans. Shocker, I know. 40% said that their student loans haven't negatively affected them. So so I guess that's great that we're giving them money that they admittedly they, they don't need. And 77% said that they probably could use the money more wisely. Uh, But clearly that realization doesn't matter. Continuing to look at the findings, what do they expect to spend their money on? Well, 44% on a smartphone. My guess is that this isn't to replace their antique that they just can't make work anymore. 43% on investing in the stock market. Now, if this is retirement funds, okay, but uh, get rich quick. Yeah, not, not as okay. 
uh, 42% on gifts. Okay, if we're talking reasonable Christmas gifts, just helping to go and bridge that gap, I, I'm okay with that. 36% on gaming systems. Uh, just no, no. 30% on a wedding. Uh, I mean, okay, to a point, that one's fine. 28% will spend this on, <laughs> oh, wait for it, drugs and or alcohol. Oh, wait, oh hold on. 27% said that they were going to go gambling. Now, how much do you despise Biden's use of your taxes? Huh? <sighs> Interestingly, an average of 73% of respondents agreed that spending on non-essentials is probably wrong, which breaks down to 80% of men saying it's wrong and 67% of women. I'm literally not really sure how to feel about this finding. Finally, 77% said that they could probably spend less and save more if they really wanted to. And that breaks down to 86% of men and 70% of women. Conversely, 15% of women said that there was just no way they could spend less than they're spending right now. And 8% of men agreed. So how does this CNBC author, a woman, which I don't know, maybe that matters, looking at the survey results at least, how does she address this? Quote, both your personal spending habits and how you view the morality of debt are nobody's business but your own. But if you're waiting to see your student loan balance shrink, it's a good idea to check in on your financial goals and desires before your budget changes so you can get the most out of any extra money. So is spending the money that was unwillingly gifted to them by the taxpayers really their own business? I'd vote no. This is literally just another form of welfare, just another social government program. Looking at this like a government-paid welfare system, I absolutely believe that, for example, for those on the SNAP program, better known as food stamps, it should be very, very limited as to what can be purchased. And since SNAP benefits are all done via a debit card, it should be very simple to make that happen. Scan the card first before groceries are scanned, and the computer systems at the stores can be programmed to reject certain things, like alcohol and all forms of tobacco, pop, candy, etc. SNAP is short for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The items able to be purchased should only fit that designation. If you want other stuff, well, get a job. Unfortunately, we can't do that with this debt relief program, if it actually goes through. But this is where personal morality, individual conscience, this is where this should come into play. But as we can see, it's, it's not that the conscience is non-existent, it's that they just don't care. A financial analyst told CNBC that these individuals shouldn't be looking at this as a windfall. If they spend it on non-essentials, they won't be getting ahead. They won't be investing in their future. Now, I kind of get the feeling that the majority of those surveys would say, go to bed, old man. Now, remember, about 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. We also know that the younger the demographic, the less likely the claim to be a Christian. Still, though, it's clear from the survey that 70 plus percent of these borrowers know that they should probably use this freed up cash more wisely. And we know that most agreed they could use this money as well as their current income more wisely. And yet we have a cognitive dissonance. They believe one thing, but they do the other. In fact, those that said they were going to use it unwisely and said they have no problem doing so, those are actually more cognitively aligned. I mean, in the wrong direction, but still, at least their actions match their worldview. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So why would they do this? Well, because they and we are sinners. 
some of us, some of them are saved, but we're all sinners. Now, Paul writing to Titus, speaking of false teachers, said, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This would be describing the unsaved. Although it appears that at least two-thirds of those that said they'd spend this freed-up money on non-essentials know that that's the wrong thing to do, although their consciences do recognize that, their consciences are defiled to the point that it doesn't allow them to care. For the unbelievers, this is nothing that should shock us. This is the status of the unregenerate conscience. From a viewpoint of biblical morality, they'll be hit or miss on everything because the conscience they're dealing with is generally going to be more of their own brain recounting their learned ethics and morality. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit would or could never be a component of their conscience, but if he is, I would think it would be rare. It's just my personal thought. I don't have a verse necessarily to back that up. That said, I believe that their actions mostly rely on their own minds and desires. But for the Christian, which some percentage of these borrowers are, they know it's wrong, but they would do it anyway. Those individuals are in danger. Our consciences could simply be our learned ethics and morals, but at least for a much greater percentage of the time, I would think that for the Christian, our conscience is the Holy Spirit's nudging. Paul said in Acts 24, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Following the conscience isn't easy. When Paul says he takes pains, that's the word in Greek, eskeo. The word represents a concept meaning to labor or strive or exercise. The implication being that he didn't just think, hey, I should follow my conscience. He's exerting effort to ensure he follows his conscience, which means that the Holy Spirit's promptings aren't generally going to be to take the easy way out of any decision or choice. And this is akin to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he said that he disciplines his body and keeps it under control so he wouldn't disqualify himself as a preacher or an apostle based on his own preaching. The word for discipline is hupopiazzo. This literally translates to beat black and blue or smite so as to cause bruises. If you look at different Bible translations for this verse, you'll find this concept clearly stated. The common English Bible says, I'm landing punches on my own body and subduing it like a slave. The disciples' literal New Testament says, I bruise my body and make it my slave. The easy-to-read version says, it is my own body I fight to make it do what I want. I don't know about you, but I'm getting the impression that Paul is telling us through his example that doing what's right, to follow God, to acquiesce to the Holy Spirit's nudging, it doesn't come easily or naturally. So back to our little wealth redistribution, you probably have gathered that I don't really want this thing to go through at all. I think it's illegal, unconstitutional, and immoral in itself. Then knowing that this will apparently be a temptation for the vast majority of the borrowers to misuse what has been given to them, and at least 50% of the borrowers will be knowingly ignoring their conscience, this is a temptation we shouldn't be tempting them with. For the Christian, they're in danger of searing their conscience. Although we don't know how much is too much, and likely it's different for everyone, there is a point where we ignore and push aside the conscience, and God essentially finally says, okay, this is what you want, well, have at it, let's see how it works. And lest I sound like these borrowers are the worst sinners, just awful people for using our money for garbage, how many of us ignore our consciences on a daily basis for whatever sin we want to commit? I, for one, can tell you that I have not escaped or hupopiazzoed my conscience or my body like Paul did. Give me about 10 or 15 minutes, I could probably fill a page with 
times over the last week that I either consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously just pushed the conscience to the side. How about you? This is why repentance and sanctification for the Christian are so important. This is also why being mindful from a biblical standpoint, not man's standpoint, is so important. Man says to clear your mind and release all your thoughts. The Bible says actively pray, read, study, and think about God's word. We must be conscious as to what we're doing, what we're choosing day in and day out. We must be aware and responsive to what our conscience, what the Holy Spirit, is telling us. And when we sin, we must recognize our sin, repent of our sin, beg for not only forgiveness for breaking God's holy laws, but also for strength to deny ourselves and turn to God in times of temptation in the future. You and I aren't really that different from these greedy, self-focused, immature, whiny, snot-nosed, college-borrowing punks. We're just not in the news or in a poll as to what our choices versus our stated morals are. Can you imagine if we were? I'd rather not have the world privy to my daily sinful decisions. However, would I really be that different from most other Christians? Would anybody really be shocked? Sadly enough. This is where sanctification comes in. We should be in prayer, reading, learning, growing as much as possible so our minds are focused on God and our hearts are that of flesh, not stone, and our consciences are whatever the opposite of seared is. I looked up some antonyms, but words like damp, sultry, clammy, humid, big, and moist didn't seem to fit. Raw was probably the best choice. We want our consciences raw, untainted, receptive, The more we learn and grow, the closer we draw to Jesus, the more we'll be able to not only hear our conscience, but gladly escao ourselves to follow our conscience. For a number of reasons, we should pray that this illegal wealth redistribution, popularity points buying scheme doesn't go through. At the same time, we should be sympathetic to those that are caught in the middle of this. It's yet another debacle. We should be as much in prayer for them as we are for ourselves, because, uh... We're really not that different. Well, this uh, this may be a horrible mistake. But look, you can't make a mess if you don't drop any eggs, right? Uh, something, something like that. So the article I found was actually reporting on a Reddit thread, and it just kind of struck me. And the comments to the Reddit thread, well, those struck me even harder. But before we start, I need to throw in a few caveats to this segment. Now first, this is an article that describes an incident inside of a marriage relationship. I don't have any more information than what the article in the thread gives me, so the length of marriage, the condition of the marriage, the temperaments of the two involved, I have none of that. So I'll be taking this article from a very standalone viewpoint. Second, I always feel inadequate when I talk about marriages or relationships, especially when giving advice, since I'm a divorced individual. It shouldn't be shocking news to anyone, as I stated that in my intro episode many moons ago. Not going into any detail here, but suffice it to say that both parties were at fault. And speaking for myself, I I think, hope, I've learned and grown a good deal since then. I couldn't say that if I went back to then, knowing what I know now, if the end result would have been different. But the older I get, the more I see my fault and wish that choices I made then would have been made differently. So take my commentary unsalted or with a grain of salt or, as I like things, coated in salty goodness. Now, third... I'm a man, and I guess this is where these days I have to say something like, I was born a male, I am a male, I don't foresee me ever not being a male, my pronouns are he, him, because those are the pronouns for the male gender, which is one of just a cornucopia of two total genders. Now, I'm going to attempt to be unbiased, 
But I think we all know that there's a good chance I inject some of my manly biases into this segment. Fourth, and lastly, knowing I'll likely botch this in one way or another, I'm sorry, all right? But don't shoot the messenger, shoot the message giver. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm both of the, never mind. How about we all just relax, no need for anything untoward to go down on a fine day or a crisp evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Okay, anyway, with all of that said, found on Newsweek via MSN.com, headline, Man Splashing Water on Wife's Too Revealing Dress Appalls Internet. Okay, so we're going to jump right over to the Reddit thread, because that's really where we need to go for the bulk of this review. This woman titled her post, quote, My husband splashed water on the dress I was going to wear to my brother's wedding because he thought it was too revealing. Now, the post is very brief. It's really just a couple paragraphs long. I want to read it in full, including any mistakes that were made, and then we'll break it down. Quote, My husband and I were invited to my brother's wedding. I had a knee-length dress with straps on shoulder and back to wear to the wedding. My husband didn't want me to wear it and said he thought it was, quote, too revealing. I told him to relax and take it easy since the wedding was small and no strangers would be there. Besides, I thought the dress was fine, not too revealing, like he said. He kept arguing with me about it and told me to wear something else, but I refused. He waited till I was wearing it, then splashed water all over it. I was in shock. Water was too cold and it covered my whole body, not just the dress. It also got to my face and hair. I froze there in shock and began to cry really loud. He was already in his suit, ready to go to the wedding. He told me he'd be waiting for me in the car while I change, but I screamed at him to F off and get out. He didn't even apologize, just kept ranting about how I ignored his feelings towards the dress and disrespected his opinion on it. I still feel upset and devastated by the whole thing. We're not speaking together, and he thinks he did me, quote, a favor and kept my, quote, dignity and from being called a, quote, hoe. I'm struggling to let this go, and I get suffocated whenever I recall the event. Okay, so at this point, we've all drawn conclusions and probably taken aside, but if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to guess that you're one of those people that may have taken aside and punctuated that side with, right? Or, however. Now, the author of this article in Newsweek, Taylor McLeod, oh, oh, you just assumed Taylor was a female, didn't you? But that could be a boy or a girl name. And you happen to be wrong. And so was I. Taylor is a man, a young man, apparently based out of California. Well, Taylor has taken the side of the poster, the wife. He states correctly, at least I think, that even the best of long-term couples can do things to erode trust and damage a relationship. Then he jumps into a space that he shouldn't have, as he's de facto making implications and accusations about the husband that he has no idea about. He quickly pivots from this being an incident that we'll discuss more of in a moment to this being a pattern of abuse. He says, quote, exerting control over a partner's choices where they go and how they dress, frequently associated with cases of abuse, is one of those behaviors that erodes trust. 
Leah, and I have no idea how to say the last name, Hune, maybe? A marriage and family therapist has already judged the husband as being insecure and afraid. She said that a, quote, need for control is most often rooted in insecurity and can leave other partners feeling judged and suffocated, adding, quote, underneath the need for control is fear. She then continued with her analysis, drawing conclusions based on nothing but what I read to you. Quote, by the time you're pouring drinks on each other, there probably have been layers of struggle in the relationship underneath that need to be addressed. Now, of course, the Reddit community was outraged, and the screeching began. The post garnered nearly 2,500 comments, and I guess either 15,600 upvotes or total votes. I don't know. I'm not a Redditor. I'm not sure how the vote thing works. What I do know is that this post got a lot of attention, which I think I might be sensing a little bit of a pattern here. Again, we'll come back to that. As for the comments, here are some of the gems, and these are read exactly how they are written, except for the swears. Quote, I'd wear dripping wet just to spite his insecure bottom. Quote, find a more revealing dress to change into. Quote, just leave his abusive bottom. This won't improve. So many people are focused on these bottoms. Quote, I would have Ubered my wet bottom to the party and had a time. Quote, and I'd follow it up with divorce papers because he is being disrespectful by trying to think he can order me to do anything. And clearly a very knowledgeable, likely psychotherapist chimed in with, quote, it's not insecure, it's controlling. It would be insecure if he just voiced that he thought the dress was too revealing. I bet you this isn't the only incident where he thinks he has a right to make her do whatever he wants. His behavior is very telling about his core beliefs. Her opinion doesn't matter because his is right. He would be embarrassed if his partner, possession, wore something he thinks is too revealing. His embarrassment trumps her bodily autonomy. When she doesn't submit to him, he has the authority to enforce his punishment and humiliate her. When she tries to stand up for herself or protests, he'll tell her she deserves it. Okay, so I asked my female daughter child, after briefly explaining the scenario, what she thought. Who was wrong? And it's funny, she was also on the side of the woman, but she qualified it if it wasn't too revealing, and also he doesn't really have the right to tell her what she can wear. So I asked her where she's forming her opinion from. She had no answer. I told her that every opinion we have has to have its root somewhere. There's some reason we think the way we do about situations. We discussed for a few more minutes, and then she was heading out to youth group. So what do you think? All right, so let me tell you what I see from what she posted and, I mean, admittedly, I'm inferring some here, I'll tell you where, but, but this is what she posted. So first, there's no way to know if they have other marital problems. My guess is if they do, they're nothing too large, because she is, quote, struggling to let this go and I get suffocated when I recall the event. Now, if he was abusive or controlling, would she use this kind of language? Would she be this dramatic about it? Maybe, but that seems unlikely. She also said, quote, he didn't even apologize. Well, if he was routinely abusive, would she be shocked that he didn't apologize? I'd say no. She also said that when he poured the water on her, she, quote, began to cry really loud, and then she, quote, screamed at him to F off and get out. 
This is not what the abused would do to an abuser. This is also not actions taken by someone who is enduring this on a regular basis. So this appears to be more of a one-off or an anomaly, if you will, in this relationship, not the modus operandi. Next, she agreed with him that the dress was too revealing. Now, although she says it wasn't, that it was fine, that was the afterthought to, quote, I told him to relax and take it easy since the wedding was small and no strangers would be there. This absolutely tells me that she knew that at best this dress was pushing boundaries. Next, he asked, told, then likely demanded she change it. She said, quote, he kept arguing with me about it and told me to wear something else, but I refused. This doesn't sound like it started with him just slamming the fist on the table and exerting control like the screeching Karens in the comment section want to believe. Next, it does not sound like he is dealing with fear or insecurity. Notice that she never stated that he said anything about himself. She said his comments were that he thinks he did her a favor, that he helped her keep her dignity, and that he kept her from being called a hoe. Remember, this was her brother's wedding, and she stated that it was a small wedding with attendees being people she knew. So this was likely her family and the bride's family, maybe a few close friends. There's no way she would have been friends with the bride's extended family or just the bride's acquaintances. That doesn't make logical sense. Furthermore, I don't think that one could even claim he was afraid of what his family would think, because what are the odds that his family would be attending his wife's brother's wedding, especially when it's a small wedding? Possible, but sounds very unlikely. So to me, if he looked at the dress and felt that she was going to be viewed negatively by her own family and friends, there had to be more, or I, I guess less in this case, to this dress than what she's letting on. She also said that after he didn't apologize that he, quote, just kept ranting about how I ignored his feelings towards the dress and disrespected his opinion on it. Notice how she didn't say that he ranted about how she defied his orders or anything like that. Her word choice matters. This may be where my male bias kicks in, but taken completely from her words, it sounds to me like this man was trying to protect his wife's dignity and reputation. Maybe he was more conservative than he could have been. Maybe not, but it really appears that his instinct to protect his wife is what drove this. And lastly, this woman, from the little I see, likes attention. Why else would she post this on Reddit? Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but when I was married and we had our big throwdowns, our blow-ups, I wasn't really keen on airing our dirty laundry for all to see. Now that might be because I'm an introvert, I don't know, but I just don't get the impression that most people would do something like this unless they have at least some craving for attention, which brings us back to the dress. The fact that she posted this at all, using the very dramatic language she used, saying that she gets suffocated when she recalls the event, attempting to minimize his argument when pushing the I'm a strong independent woman vibe, that tells me that the dress in question was most likely revealing most likely in order to gain some sort of attention. So, my opinion, based on what I see, what I just laid out, this is not an abusive man. He's a man that did not want his wife wearing a dress that would have all sorts of leering eyes all over her, giving her the appearance of being, as he said, a hoe. Is this insecurity or jealousy on his part? Eh, maybe. Based on her words, if he were feeling insecure, would he be wrong in feeling that? It appears to me that he was in almost maybe a panic mode, a tunnel vision. Should he have thrown water on her dress? Eh, 
Probably not the best move, but notice how he didn't restrain her. He didn't beat her. He was creative, and I'd bet that he just felt he was out of options, that he had to stop her from doing this. Water's creative. It literally hurts nothing but feelings, unless you're a wicked witch, and then you melt while screaming, what a world, what a world. She didn't yell that. She yelled at him to F off and get out. So, you know, different. Opinions may and likely do vary here, but overall, I have to take the man's side on this one. His actions were slightly extreme, but were they really? Now, from a counseling view, the man needs to be respected. The woman needs to be loved. He definitely was not being respected. And maybe that's because he's generally not showing her the love that she needs. And she's craving some attention. That's entirely possible. Again, we're not able to infer too deeply into their relationship overall. But from a biblical standpoint, the husband absolutely has the right to request or even demand that she not wear a certain something, especially if he has a valid reason for his objection, which he said he did, and she even admitted that he did, as I just explained. In fact, marriage is supposed to be two uniting into one. She has rights to his body, and conversely, he has rights to her body. 1 Corinthians 7 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, in context, this is talking about sexual relations inside of a marriage, but let's be honest here. If that applies to the most intimate of acts, you'd be foolish to not be able to apply it to the style of dress and other areas as well. And this does cut both ways. If the husband was wearing things, or let's say he was in a constant mode of working out, and based on his actions, this was clearly with the intention of attracting certain types of attention— the wife absolutely has the right to express her desire for him to stop, at least stop doing what he's doing for the reasons he's doing it. And if he loves his wife, he stops, or he changes what he's doing. Now, clearly, there are a few possibilities of what's happening here, and if we're not careful, we jump to one conclusion or the other. So the first possibility. The husband could be a controlling misogynist. The idea that he's the king of the castle, the lord of the manor, the wife is there to be seen and not heard, to provide for his every need, to raise his children, to cook and serve his meals, and on and on and on. And heaven help her if she doesn't do this. It could be a more mild form where, as the author implied, he's just controlling. As long as he gets his way, things will work out just fine. This is what the bulk of the commenters believe, and based on their worldview and a clearly humanist worldview, the answer is to take the one incident and leave his sorry bottom. And although one could claim to see elements of misogyny in his actions, is he a misogynist? Maybe, maybe not. Second, the wife could be a radical feminist. I believe that one of the most destructive movements in this country in all of our history is the feminist movement. Now, I'm not saying that a woman shouldn't be allowed to vote or drive or work or that they must stay in the home making meals and pleasing her man on demand and popping out babies. I'm saying that the militant movement of I am woman, hear me roar, which only fights for the rights of some women, those that are generally angry or hateful toward men, those that will never let a man tell them what to do, those that feel that the only good man is a neutered man, those kinds of feminists have destroyed the lives of men and women alike. They blast out their propaganda that an unborn child is the woman's property to do with as she sees fit, that a man is only there to keep her down, so you must fight back. Those that choose to be the stay-at-home mom, that choose to raise the kids, cook the meals, clean the house, those are the losers of society, the trodden on, the beaten down. Do not be one of those under any circumstances. The feminist movement is not only harmful to everyone, including themselves, but it's unbiblical and sinful. I can tell you as a single man, admittedly from my perspective, 
I don't know if it's the majority, but a large percentage of women seem to be either militant or at least severely compromised with this worldview. If I were to have to choose the misogynist husband or the feminist wife in this scenario, I'd probably lean much more heavily toward the latter of the two options. But even though you can see elements of this destructive feminism in her words, I can't say that this is who she is. Although there was definitely an air of misogyny from the husband, I also can't say that this is who he is. It may very well be that this was who she was, with the specific instance only. So he was how he was in response, or maybe vice versa. One thing you learn in relationship counseling is that a couple can easily get into a death spiral. The wife does not feel love, so she will not give respect. The husband does not feel respected, so he will not give love. Unless one of them breaks the cycle, nothing will ever change, and nothing will ever get better. All that said, I think the only thing we could conclude with any accuracy at all would be that uh, they're both sinners. And again, and I'm, again, I'm making an assumption here, it appears that they may very well be unsaved, unrepentant sinners. So Ephesians 5 tells the wife to, quote, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the respect portion. And this is typically where the woman, the feminist woman, will jump in and say, he's not my boss, and then they something about his or maybe her bottom and what he can do with it. But as we all likely know, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, quote, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church with a sacrificial, unyielding, righteously jealous, protective, unending love. This is fighting for her honor, protecting her even if it may be from herself. Now, maybe this was done imperfectly, but from her words, I get the distinct impression that he was doing what should naturally, by way of ingrained instinct, happen. We can all pray that this couple weathers this storm, that the wife does not listen to the militant, godless mouth-breathers on Reddit, that the husband doesn't listen to his buddies that are undoubtedly telling him that she's not worth it. More so, we can all pray that they find Jesus and that they work on loving each other, as 1 Corinthians tells us, be patient, be kind, don't envy, don't boast, don't be arrogant, don't insist on your own way, don't be irritable, don't be resentful, don't rejoice over wrongs, rather rejoice in the truth, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Unfortunately, this kind of love is hard enough when Jesus is the central strand and the threefold cord. When it's a cord of only two, this kind of love is essentially impossible. Imagine this scenario if the husband and the wife both fought just as hard to first honor God in all they do, second, honor each other in all they do, and third, do all in their power to outlove 
and out-respect the other in their words and deeds. And there you have it, my take on what could be a very polarizing short article about an even shorter Reddit post. What do you think? What did I miss? What did I get wrong? I'm always wanting to improve my ability to view the world. Let me know what I've totally biffed it on. But do it in love. Or else. Well, we've just come through another election. Well, nearly. Some states still apparently can't figure out how to count ballots. Maybe they have some jokesters standing there shouting out random numbers while they're counting, making them mess up. And then they laugh and laugh, and someone shoots milk out of their nose, which is odd because that guy hasn't had milk in weeks. And then they have to start counting again. Some ballots, typically Republican ones, are, you know, ruined by the nose milk, so those will have to be thrown away, but, you know. For what it's worth, we've once again at least attempted to exercise our constitutional right to vote for our elected overlords. I mean, public servants. Young and old alike cast their votes, the living and the dead. Some people so excited by this right that's been granted to them that they've done it many, many times this very cycle. And even some of the darker-skinned Americans somehow, despite what the Democrats would have us believe, found a polling place, fumble around in their pockets and grocery sacks of random things, found an ID that clearly a white man had to help them get, and push the buttons they were supposed to push in order to be considered black. Welcome back to the American Genesis. I'm your American Genesis-assist, Dan Irwin. This is episode 17 of the American Genesis, part 9 in our look at the Constitution. Hey, we're nearly there. We're getting close here. We've discussed the prayers, the earnestness, the seriousness with which our founders undertook this task. We discussed the preamble, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and last time, the judicial branch. And now, as we move into Article 4, we're looking at the states. What boundaries did the founders put on the states? Well, to be honest, not a whole lot. So, might as well get started, right? Starting with Article 4, Section 1, we read... Full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state, and the Congress may, by general laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved and the effect thereof. Okay. I know this is a state's rights or a state sovereignty thing, while ensuring each state knows what the other state is doing, but I'll be honest, I had to look this one up to see exactly what was meant here. So, doing a quick duck-duck-go search, I found AnnenbergClassroom.org, and this site offered a very concise summary. There are basically two points to this section. Implied in this section is that the states have the right to make laws, pass judgments, enforce penalties, etc., as they see fit, as long as they don't violate federal law, which at this time would be the Constitution. So then this section first ensures that each state must honor the laws or whatever of other states. The example that this site gave was that if someone were legally married in one state, they must be recognized as legally married in other states. Now, for most things, this was simple enough. Now, more recently, the push to have same-sex marriage legalized, well, that tested the waters. If a same-sex couple were married in another state, would a state that denied the recognition of that marriage have to recognize it if they were to move into their state? Well, in 1996, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act. You might have heard of this as called DOMA. This did two things. First, it defined marriage as being the opposite sex only. And then it allowed other states the ability to not 
recognize a same-sex marriage were they to move into their state. And of course, this became law when that hateful right-wing president, Bill Clinton, signed it into law. Now, this didn't necessarily stop states from pushing the boundaries. Massachusetts recognized same-sex marriage in 2004. California, oddly enough, put the now infamous Prop 8 on the ballot in 2008, which was to amend the state constitution and actually define marriage as one man and one woman. Now, this was while the Terminator was governor, so maybe that says something. Prop 8 passed, meaning that the state of California did not want gay marriage in their state. And then the courts took over, and they ruled illegally, voted on amendment, unconstitutional, somehow, and gay marriage was legalized. I still don't know how that's possible, but that's what happened. And now, with the Supreme Court ruling on Obergefell, which was the same kind of flimsy, frankly, unconstitutional ruling as Roe, same-sex marriage is forced to be legal across the country. Justice Thomas recently was right when he said that rulings made in similar manner as Roe should really be retried and most likely nullified also and send the authority back to the states to decide for themselves what they'd like to do. Now back to section one. The second thing it does is it gives the federal government the right to place guidelines or laws as to how the states must interact with each other's laws, etc., This essentially fixed a flaw in the Articles of Confederation that had more of a hands-off, loosey-goosey approach to the state-to-state interactions. This kept the states somewhat autonomous, yet ensured the Congress could keep the states united at the same time. Now, moving to Section 2, we read, The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime, who shall flee from justice and be found in another state, shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled, be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. No person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. So, this section solidified the definition of a citizen of the United States, rather than a citizen in the United States, but of a specific state. If a citizen were to pass through or move to another state, they couldn't be discriminated against and held to a different standard. You were entitled to the rights of that state. At the same time, an individual was not allowed to flee from their crimes to another state. The state boundary was not like hitting goal or base in tag or capture the flag. If you committed a crime and fled to another state, and the state of the crime demanded you back so they could try you for your crime, well, pack your bags, you're heading back. Clause 3, of course, had to do primarily with slavery. Now, this could be applied to indentured servitude as well, but this was primarily put in there for runaway slaves. Just because they escaped their slave master into a free state didn't make them free. However, the free state didn't have to turn the slave over unless the slave master delivered proper claim, proof of ownership, and that's if he found him in the first place. Now, this didn't nullify, but it neutered the free state's anti-slavery laws and stances. I'm not sure how often this clause was used, 
based on the logistics of the process, I'd guess probably more than we'd like, but less than we'd think. I don't know. This clause, of course, was nullified with the abolition of slavery, but we'll get to that in due time. Now, on to Section 3, we read, New states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. The Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States, and nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or of any particular state. So, clearly we've added a number of new states, split existing states into more than one, redrawn boundaries, etc., since the adoption of the Constitution. The founders recognized that with a large country made of, even at that time, a somewhat diverse number of ethnic and religious backgrounds and a lot of unexplored, at least by them, territory, the map could change over time. But this wasn't something that needed to happen as a normal course of action. If changes happened, they must be very, very difficult to take place. Otherwise, we'd have a mess. So to make the process cumbersome, they required new states to be given congressional approval. They required all other map redrawings that involved existing states to be agreed to by both states or all the states involved, and then by Congress before they could make that change. Now I'd point to West Virginia, who split from Virginia, as they were a handful of counties that wanted nothing to do with being a slave state, so they petitioned to become a free state on their own. Now, for the last number of years, the question of admitting Puerto Rico as the 51st state has been in discussion. The Puerto Ricans are basically split on this. The leadership seems to be against it. Back in the States, I don't know that there's a lot of opposition to it, but it's very likely it would come in as a heavily Democrat state, so that's not what this country needs, which is why the Democrats are pushing so hard to uh, tape another star onto the flag. Additionally, plans have been around... I don't know, forever to slice up California into anywhere from two to six states from what I've seen. This has been proposed for the same reason that a lot of citizens of a lot of states are frustrated because a few large cities, heavily Democrat, have basically taken over the electoral process. On the 2022 ballot, a number of counties on the eastern half, maybe eastern two-thirds of Oregon, voted to leave Oregon and join Idaho in the Greater Idaho Project. As of now, I believe 11 counties have voted to leave Oregon and join Idaho. Another county is set to vote on it in the near future. And three others and parts of two more haven't yet set a timeline to vote, but they're in this as well. Now, this is admittedly a long shot. The counties want to leave the liberal Portland mentality of Western Oregon. Idaho has already said they'll gladly take them, but it would have to get past the Oregon legislature and then the federal government. All cards would have to fall just right to make this happen. But honestly, why would a heavily blue portion of a state want to keep people that can't stand them and are constantly fighting them for control every election? And it comes down to the same three simple answers, right? Greed, money, and power. Now, I split greed and money apart because these legislatures just don't want to cede their land. It's their land, at least. That's how they think. And then when you talk money... 
well, a lot of the counties are the revenue generators, the mineral or fossil fuel rights, the timber, the farmland. Believe it or not, the large Democrat cities are nothing but money suckers. They generate nothing because they produce nothing. And then power, of course. There's no governor or legislature that wants to give up a chunk of control over people and land. Now, to me, I think we should be redrawing boundaries just everywhere. And they should be split and redrawn based on, I would say, the House districts, how those have gone in the last elections. The heavily red districts with a long history of being red should be carved out and either a new state created or combined with others to create a state. The heavily historically blue districts should have the same done with them. And then the flip-floppers, the purple districts, well, I don't know, rock, paper, scissors maybe? I think one of the best things we could do, one of the best experiments we can do in the grand experiment that America is, is to redraw the maps. I'm not going to hold my breath, though, as I can only do that for about a minute without passing out, and I don't think that's enough time, clearly. This section also gives Congress the right to make decisions about what to do with territories like Washington, D.C. and Guam and others, as well as what to be done with the federally owned lands inside of the states. Now, that's unfortunate that they have that power because, as of right now, the federal government currently owns about 27% of all of the land that makes up the United States. Now, to me, that's way too many percents. Uh, That should be much lower, like 0%. The states should really own their own land. Now, looking at the specific states, we see some just wonderful numbers. So the federal government presently owns 80% of Nevada, over 60% of Utah, Idaho, and Alaska, over 50% of Oregon, around 45% of Wyoming and California, 39% of Arizona, 36% of Colorado, 32% of New Mexico, 29% of Montana and Washington. 34 states are 10% or less owned by the federal government. That's better. Randomly chosen, West Virginia stands at 7.4%, Wisconsin stands at 5.3%, and Oklahoma stands at 1.5%. So those aren't too bad. But Connecticut and Iowa are the winners in my book, being tied for the least amount of federally owned land at 0.3%. Now, like I said to me, it should be 0.0%. Okay, I understand it can't quite be that, but it should be really close. And I know that Some and some of these heavily owned states are crafting plans to force the federal government to relinquish large chunks of this land back to their state. We'll just kind of have to see how that goes. Moving to the final section of Article 4, in Section 4, we read, The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. So yes, the federal government must protect the union from invasion. It kind of makes you wonder what's going on down at our southern border. I mean, not all invasions need to involve guns or tanks, right? In fact, just today, which it's November 15th when I'm recording this here, Texas Governor Greg Abbott invoked this very clause, the Invasion Clause, and declared an invasion on the border. 
He stated, quote, I invoked the invasion clauses of the U.S. and Texas constitutions to fully authorize Texas to take unprecedented measures to defend our state against an invasion. I'm using that constitutional authority and other authorization and executive orders to keep our state and country safe. Now, as part of his measures, he's deploying the National Guard and the Texas Department of Public Safety to patrol the borders. He's going to use state money to build sections of wall, and he's putting gunboats on the Rio Grande River. And I say, good for him. Where are the other border states? And personally, I've got no problem with other states that are not on the border making the exact same declaration and providing funding. Now, we'll see where this goes, though. I'm sure Biden will be told how mad he is so that he can come out and mumble his way through a teleprompter speech. And no doubt that traitor to America, the Cuban-born Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, who should be doing his job securing the border, now he's probably formulating his genius response. I also find it interesting that despite the decades of concerted effort to make America democracy, because that's how you get to a socialist utopia, he says tongue-fully-in-cheek, The Constitution clearly states that the federal government is supposed to, quote, guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. Why is this not ever clearly pointed out to Americans? I I don't know. It seems important to me. If you want more information on the difference between a democracy and socialism and a republic, etc., go check out episode 74. It's in segment three, which is episode seven, looking at the Democrat Party platform. I go into greater detail in that segment on the different types of governments. Well, looking at the length of this right now and looking what's left to cover in the Constitution, eh, we probably need to stop for this segment of the American Genesis. Now, in part 10, we will wrap up the Constitution by looking at Articles 5, 6, and 7. These are short. They all have to do with the Constitution itself. There are some interesting things going on today that we need to discuss, however, and that invokes Article 5. Then after that, we'll start looking at the amendments that have been made to this document over the years since its ratification. But as I said for now, we'll bring this segment and this episode to a close. Now, since this is coming out shortly after the most recent election, and likely for most of those listening to this, things didn't go as planned or hoped. First, if you want my full take on the election, check out Episode 77. But I want to reiterate that God has never left his throne. I truly believe that this Constitution was divinely inspired and that it will endure until God says it's time for it to fall. Now, if or when that time comes, remember that God's plans and God's timing is perfect, regardless of if we like it or if we even understand it. Now, were he a God that could be influenced by our ideas for an alternative plan, he would either not be the God of the Bible or the ultimate outcome would be infinitely worse than anything we could imagine. God is in control. He has ordained what led up to the Constitution, the writing of all of our founding documents, all of the battles and the wars fought, all of the leaders we've had, both good and bad, and all things have been done for his glory and for the good of his children, even the outcome of this last election cycle. As I said, our understanding of it makes absolutely no difference. We're called to have faith. So with that, chin up, as one of my favorite regenerations of Doctor Who said, brave heart, and keep your eyes and your faith focused on Jesus. So, until next time. 
And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.